Episode of Trans Regret Snoopy Presents the Bible. I have a very special guest returning with me today uh, to speak with me about Luke 15, Evelyn Richardson. Welcome, Evelyn. Yes, thank you for having me back. We, uh, we did our first episode together as a bonus episode for patrons on uh, patreon.com slash transregretsnoopy. And we talked about Genesis 32 and 33. Is that right? Yes. So we had a really, really fun conversation about Jacob and Esau and um, and Jacob wrestling with God and the nature of forgiveness and uh, the nature of God's love and how we can love like God. And I think it really just drew out some beautiful truth from the scripture that we were that we were talking about. I enjoyed it so much. I thought, you know what? We're going to do this again. And, um, and we picked another passage that kind of relates in its own way to forgiveness and to the, the loving, nurturing, caring, uh, persistent love of God. Uh, I'm really happy that we, that we chose this one. And, and I think it's fairly well-known scripture. For a lot of people, this isn't going to be surprising stuff. Folks have heard these parables before. What, do, you, do you have any like recollection of the first time you heard the, the parable of the prodigal son? I will tell you, I can definitely easily imagine that sort of coloring book style illustration of the scene of... of uh, the prodigal son. Mm-hmm. You know, do you can you imagine the art style I'm talking about? Absolutely, yeah. Very, very sort of rudimentary line work, and um, yeah, the the sheep are all very fluffy. All the animals look kind of <laughs> very simple, <laughs> and yeah, uh, p- pastel colors. The desert, for some reason, looks like it's it's two shades of of brown and blue. Yeah, and um, yeah, I know I know what you mean. This is this is a story that I think. Um, like a lot of the parables that have become sort of common um, tropes for people that are not just Christian, but, but but sort of people throughout our culture and many other cultures, the idea of the prodigal son is not, to a lot of people, is not a uniquely Christian idea, right? It, it, it surrounds, it is permeated, steeped in um, the nature of human forgiveness, uh, of the... Um, of you know welcoming those who who you have lost back in uh, after they've after they've gone astray or after they've abandoned you or however you want to perceive it it's interesting because like so many of the um, the deep beautiful truths that we see in the Bible it is universal it is something that translates into any language it's something that translates on a human emotional level. And I think that's why this particular one seems to have taken off uh, in the way that it did into sort of the common lexicon. The prodigal returning is this sort of this sort of idea that that a lot of people don't even have in their heads necessarily connected to Christianity. Isn't that strange? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I remember again if we're thinking about that sort of um, fundamental American Christianity. 
something that's always stuck with me is a version of my Bible that noted that Psalms was so universal that even a lot of non-believers read it. And I always thought that was very interesting because um, I thought the concept of non-believers was so taboo. So I think I was sort of attracted to and I kind of liked the idea that my, you know, preteen Bible said something about non-believers still um, accessing uh, insight or wisdom from, uh, you know, a book of the Bible. And I think that this, yeah, exactly. This is a part of our secular lexicon still. Mm-hmm. And, and there are a couple of, in, in Luke 15, there are a couple of parables that precede the, uh, the parable of the prodigal son. And some folks call, um, I believe in the Orthodox Church, they refer to it as the parable parable of the lost son. Um, someone in our Bible study group this past week was uh, wise enough to point out that that brings up the question of uh, which son is the lost one, which I thought was a really, really interesting point. Um, but before we get into that, we talked a little bit about your background on the Patreon episode, but uh, can we speed run a little bit for folks who aren't acquainted with the Patreon, aren't, aren't on the Patreon or aren't acquainted with you already? Um, just a little bit about your background, uh, you know, what what you grew up in and, and where you find yourself in faith today. Yeah, of course. So I do feel like I was raised in that sort of, yeah, very American sort of passive Methodism. Um, you know, going to Sunday school a little bit when I was very young. I did go to a non-denominational Christian school for two years, sixth and seventh grade. And then I never went back to church after that because, you know, my family was really not very invested in it. But that really introduced uh, a love in the Bible as literature for me. And that's what I kept coming back to uh, throughout my adolescence. And then my young adulthood was the Bible as the the good book, right? This great <laughs> towering achievement of art. And it was really through that attraction to it as, you know, the finest work of art uh, that I felt my spirituality grow. And eventually I just realized I cannot deny Christ. The reason that I keep coming back <laughs> to this book is because I do want God in my life. And there, there is something deeper there. It's deeper than the appreciation of the art. But I learned that through the love of the art. I think that's um, that's a great way to to build one's faith. Even if, like, I think that a lot of people, um, especially in non-denominational Christianity in the U.S., uh, you know, f- f- being born out of uh, the Reformation and being born out of Luther and and faith being first and foremost, that all you need to know is that uh, Jesus is the Son of God. And that, you know, he, he died for our sins and, and, you know, you have to devote yourself to him. And that's all really, that's, that's the, uh, the be all end all of it. You know, anything before that is just sort of pussyfooting around what, um, you know, what the real, what the real substance of faith is. But I think uh, it, it's, it does a disservice to um, those people that, that need to have an emotional reaction to art in order to, to truly deeply invest themselves into uh, a theology or a um, even just sort of like a, a mindset, a way of life that um, sometimes you just need that that synapse to fire in your brain. You need that part of your brain to click. Um, you and I talked, I believe, a little bit about Christian musicals 
during yes. our Patreon episode. <laughs> and I, I will, I, I'll be completely open about this, that a, a major part of, of, you know, sort of my personal revival, my coming back to, um, my coming back to God and, 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 and accepting Jesus as like, as my savior and, and, and understanding like the, the weight and the gravity of what he did for us. Uh, a, a large part of that was through Christian music and, and Christian musicals, namely for me, Godspell, love Godspell. Can't talk enough about it. I think I've already talked about it on the show before, but it is these sort of like aspects of uh, Christian art that can sometimes draw people in that may not have otherwise been involved. And I think it's really, really important to respect that as a path towards faith, just like any other. I mean, some people aren't born into this faith. Some people don't have the urge to dive into a bathtub in a parking lot somewhere and, <laughs> and, you know, and, and then come up out of the water and go, you know, I'm saved. Uh, sometimes the, the path is a little more windy. Sometimes the path is a little more complicated. I, I have something to share with you about that. I'll even send you a photograph that maybe you can post on the, the Patreon or something, which is, yeah, so Jesus Christ Superstar, that has been huge for me since childhood. Um, that is, you know, one of the great albums. It's a great rock opera. And I really do think that it is a good gateway drug to you know, that line between engaging with the story of Christ as fine art and fine literature and the, the deeper emotional and spiritually resonant things really grabbing hold of your heart. So I've always loved it. And I uh, had the great fortune of uh, seeing several productions of Jesus Christ Superstar when I was a child. And I got to see uh, both uh, Carl Anderson, who portrayed Judas in the film version in 1973, uh, and additionally, wow. Ted Neely, who played Jesus basically on and off for almost half a century. So I got to see him on his final tour. And I was 12 years old and I spoke with him after. And I was expecting this to be, you know, 30 seconds high. You know, I, I love your portrayal. Will you give me an autograph sort of thing? This man spoke with me for like half an hour. Um, and I <laughs> really remember feeling like I feel like I am speaking to Jesus. And of course, what I understand now is that any time that we do show, you know, our brothers and our sisters love and genuine interest in them and compassion and kindness and care, we are speaking with Jesus. But, you know, you can imagine this was a very powerful moment for me. That's, um, that's such a beautiful way of, of imagining that sometimes that connection between two people, I think Jesus said, it best when two or more are gathered in my name, you know, I'm there, that uh, even a conversation about Jesus with someone else can be like speaking to God, you know, himself, Jesus himself, like that, that can be as equally as powerful because the spirit can speak through us and, and can make these, um, these intimate connections with us, even through other people. I, I think that's a beautiful story. Um, did you get a picture? Is that the what you wanted to? Was yes. there a picture that you said? That sounds yeah, awesome. There, there is a photograph of little twelve-year-old me in a far too large Goodwill blazer. You know, I had to get very dressed up to go see Jesus Christ Superstar <laughs> and just beautiful Ted Neely. You know, I've heard some people they say he's too short to play Jesus. What a 
cuckoo thing to say, you know? (laughs) I love Ted Neely. I think that he is a fantastic Jesus. And as I said, his personal conduct proves that he deserves to, you know, have been playing this role for 50 years. (laughs) You know, I think that... um it's interesting that we have this uh, concept of Jesus. So many of us create this idea of what Jesus looks like in our minds. And uh, geographically speaking, historically speaking, the man could not have been taller than like five foot four. Yeah, right? exactly. I mean, just realistically. I saw a very funny um, uh, shot of an ad from, I, I think it was Walmart or something like that, that had a six foot tall Caucasian Jesus plush doll stuffed animal thing <laughs> with these kids like sitting around it being like, oh, this is so great. We have Jesus here with us. It's like, okay, that that um, that stuffed animal or stuffed human or stuffed Jesus would tower, likely tower over <laughs> the real, the real yeah. Jesus. Uh, I think in, in the parlance of the times, Jesus was the original short king. <laughs> Most likely. Short kings rise up. Yes. <laughs> um, so let's let's get into let's get into Luke 15. Um, we have like uh, like we have in many um, sections of the Gospels, uh, especially in Luke, there's this sort of preamble of the people that were in power at the time or sort of the dominant culture at the time kind of looked down upon Jesus for the company that he kept. Um, Jesus was known to hang around with sinners, you know, in big, you know, big quotation marks, blocks, letters, block letters, sinners, um, with tax collectors, with people, um, people who hung out in places where, you know, you would be considered to be unclean to be there. And so, of course, the Pharisees were always kind of, uh, they were they were always kind of dismissive of Jesus for for being around these people. Like, well, you can't possibly be who you say you are because you're you're hanging out with all these unclean people. And and Jesus first poses a short parable, and then an even shorter parable, and then blows up into the the parable of the prodigal son. What I find most interesting about the parable of the lost sheep is something that the Oxford NRSV points out that is um, a phrase, a very, very small turn of phrase that implies something really important. So I would like to read this from the ESV first. It uses the same phrase that the NRSV pointed out. Um, we'll go through the whole thing and then we'll circle back to the beginning, okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, This is starting in Luke 15, uh, verse 3. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Verse 7 on its own is an extremely powerful verse. Um, It says a lot 
about the nature of forgiveness and redemption. It says a lot about what Christ's heart was towards humanity and what what God's heart is towards us in general, in the grand scheme of, of our eternal souls. But the, uh, the phrase in verse 4, until he finds it, implies that Jesus, the good shepherd, will keep looking. The, uh, the word that the NRSV uses to describe this is Luke's universalism which is a kind of a dirty word in, 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 in sort of modern uh, mainstream Christianity, universalism. Uh, most, most progressive Christians, I think, would consider themselves universalists in one, in one way or another. But this phrase, until he finds it, implies that the shepherd continues looking, continues seeking until that sheep is brought back. That is a very, very powerful notion to me. That's something that really stuck out to me when I saw that, that footnote. What what was the first thing that popped out to you in this in this first parable? So what I love in this and what I've been ruminating on for these last few weeks as we've been planning uh, to discuss this chapter is Jesus is focusing this parable and he's focusing the attention on the joy felt by others. This is not an appeal to the listener and the sinner for their reward or, or their personal happiness. He is suggesting that through redemption and through coming to God, that you will bring happiness unto others. And this, to me, is a very, very powerful and very beautiful notion. What this suggests to me is that God is good, and therefore we are good too, and we want to bring goodness unto others, that there is a desire in us to bring happiness and to bring joy unto others. We want to be that lost sheep coming home, not because, you know, what I, what I find here is that he's not um, focusing on what that lost sheep is going to enjoy at home, but the focus is more on what joy that lost sheep is going to bring to others. That's really interesting. And that, that gets into verse 7. There is, I can understand from the perspective of someone who has been a devout Christian their entire lives, that has um, gone to extreme lengths to avoid, if they can, uh, pleasures of the flesh, so to speak, to avoid sin to do what they can to please God. And, and that's from the get-go, you know. And of course, we're all fallen. We all sin. We all make mistakes. Even the people that say that they're the most pious are usually just as guilty as the people who are, you know, uh, indulging in, in the, the sins that they those other people look down on so much. Mm-hmm. But uh, I could see, like we see a reflection of this in the, the parable of the prodigal son, I could see how some folks who are like, well, I've been doing it right this whole time. Why does my salvation, uh, why does my, like, my permanent, uh, you know, election into, into heaven not bring as much joy as the redemption of this drug addict or this person who's sexually immoral or, you know, pick your sin and, 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 and fill in the blank. Um, 
I can understand that to a certain extent, but it does like this so clearly highlights how important it was to Jesus that we reach out into the, the areas where those lost people would be, that even though it does require straying from the flock and, and seeking in areas we might not be familiar with or might not be comfortable with, the joy that it brings God to, uh, to bring someone who is lost closer in uh, is indescribable. It's, you know, it's, it's so unbelievably, uh, you know, it, it overwhelms everyone in heaven with joy. Uh, it's, it's, it's amazing. And, um, it gives me a lot of hope, like personally, as someone who was lost for so long, it gives me a lot of hope as someone who, who felt like I was too far gone and whatever it was that I, you know, had indulged myself in or, or, um, whatever it is that I feel like I trip up on on a regular basis that, that drive to bring me back and to see that I'm brought home safely, that never ends. That um, no matter how far we fall away, if, uh, you know, how, how far we stray from the flock, that Jesus will always bring us back, provided we allow ourselves to be found. To connect this a little bit to um, our first discussion with the brothers in Genesis, I think, too, uh, a notion that I've been reflecting on a lot is this concept of gratitude. And I think what's so important in the parable of the lost sheep is this idea that you don't want to be where that lost sheep is. Mm -hmm. Um, This notion of jealousy, I think it does make sense, of course, that Um, you have been on the right path and and you might be jealous or wounded or hurt to think that there is more rejoicing over that lost sheep coming home than you're having been here the whole time. But it's that understanding that you don't want to be away because the pain and the loneliness and the, the sorrow of being apart from God is so much greater than any petty jealousy or grievance that you could feel. That gulf is the true sorrow that any of us ever have to experience. And if you can cross that and you can remove that burden from yourself, then the, the goal is to focus on the gratitude of being in that presence of love. You know, I think that, um, I think that most of us as human beings, like adults, we are finding our own way in the world. We've established a career or a family or whatever that makes you feel like you're functional. Uh, you, you've become this, um, this stand-up kind of person who, who can take care of themselves and maybe even take care of other people, and isn't that great? Um, all of that is earthly and it's all sort of tied to our existence here. And um, so even if we feel like we have that all pinned down, that we've got that all nailed down, there's a very good chance that in the scope of eternity, in the realm of our souls, that we could still be lost. Uh, You know, it's very possible that we're not... um, even if we feel like we've been found, even if we feel like we know exactly where we're headed and we're in lockstep with with the sheep beside us, that our souls could be wandering, our minds could be wandering. Uh, no one is exempt from being the lost sheep, even if you're not 
even if you're not indulging in the sins that you feel like that, that constitutes someone who is lost, that, you know, something as simple as feeling jealous over, uh, you know, um, or feeling, you know, feeling scorn, feeling angry about something that's happened in your past, that can lead you astray just as easily as some sin of the flesh that I think a lot of people focus their minds on when they think of, of being lost, of being sinful. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to read this, um, just a bit of this from the message. The voice doesn't do a lot to uh, change the the wording of this, but um, the message, as always, I think does a good job of bringing, <laughs> bubbling the, the pith to the surface a little bit in a, in a very plain-spoken, contemporary way. Uh, it says, suppose one of you had a hundred sheep and lost one. Wouldn't you leave the 99 in the wilderness and go after the lost one until you found it? When found, you can be sure you would put it across your shoulders rejoicing. And when you got home, call in your friends and neighbors saying, celebrate with me. I found my lost sheep. Count on it. There's more joy in heaven over one sinner's rescued life than over 99 good people in no need of rescue. In a way, I'd almost rather be the lost sheep. <laughs> uh, not, not because, you know, I, I want to be away from God, but because I want to bring that joy exactly, that's <laughs> to it, other right? people. Like you, we, yeah, we, like you mentioned. that's what you know? they understand. Like, that's what God understands, is that we, we are meant to bring joy unto others. You know, I mean, think about the story of Jacob and Esau, like, in that scene, the great joy that we see is the joy of Esau to bring his brother back into his arms. You know, mm. like we are not meant to be apart from each other. We are, we are meant to be together. And that is why, I mean, that's why it's interesting in this passage that there's the 99 who, who are left alone, but then there is rejoicing all throughout heaven. And if, as you uh, discussed uh, a few minutes past, you know, if we take a universalist bent, then eventually we'll all just be rejoicing over each other, right? Mm-hmm. Some of us might take a little bit longer to get to where we need to go. Or, uh, you know, if we're playing hide and seek, some of us might hide a little bit better than other people. But ultimately, we'll be found and we'll be saved. And I haven't hammered down my theology of this entirely, but I, I consider myself a universalist in that that's something that I do believe. I don't think God ever stops seeking us. I don't think Jesus ever stops looking and stops wanting to save us. I don't think anyone is too far gone. Like truly, I think that we are all um, meant to be with God and, and be close with God in eternity. And it's not just uh, it's not just like a predestination um, checkbox. So some of you will be lost, and some of you will be found. <laughs> or um, it's not like a, sort of a legalistic. Um, well, if you you haven't you haven't done exactly what you need to do in this realm or this realm or this realm, uh, if you haven't followed these rules or this doctrine, then you are out. I I cannot. I cannot read the Gospels and see how anyone could interpret the message of Jesus being anything other than, if you seek me, I will find you, 
but I will keep seeking you. <laughs> even yeah. if you, even if you're not looking, I will, I will find you out there and I will, I will be there to love you no, no matter what you've done. If I might, I, I would love to introduce, uh, an image to this discussion because I think it's going to relate to all of the the parables that we're speaking about here. And it's something that has sort of in its own way rooted my theology as it um, concerns this question of universalism. And I think uh, maybe a recurring element of my discussions on this program here with you is going to be, well, I read this thing when I was a kid and it just kind of stuck in my craw <laughs> and it's just been bouncing around <laughs> in there for, you know, 15 years. And uh, this does not begin in theology, actually. This is sciences. But when I first learned about uh, Pangea, that was a very powerful image for me. And then learning about the, the notion of continental drift, what my immediate question was, and it's a concept that stuck with me for a very long time now, is, well, if we start with this thing that's one, and there's just one mass of land over the entire planet, and then it just breaks apart, and it just goes away from each other. Where's it? It's going to run out of space eventually. Mm. It's just going to have to come back together. And that is something that has just been in the forefront of my mind, honestly, since I was a kid. And it was divorced from my spirituality for a while until eventually it it just came together and I realized that it was the same thing. And I feel that with this concept of the universalism, which I really do think relates beautifully to these parables, this idea that even if you stray, you, you just have to come back. <laughs> you, and that is because God encompasses everything. You, you cannot be, you, you know, a mass of land is not going to just slip off of our globe it's going to eventually turn back into Pangea. That's what I believe. And that's how I feel about these sheep. That sheep, who knows how long it is going to wander, but whether it's through the, the, the hand of God moving the plates or the hand of the shepherd picking it up and putting it on its back, it's going to come back home. Hmm. But I think what maybe we're going to you know, be thinking about as we especially move into the prodigal son is, would you really want to be gone for any longer than you have to be? <laughs> Even if God will come find you, wouldn't you just like to come back home? <laughs> yeah, you'll find that if you if you if you lose yourself, if you intentionally stray, that um, the the fruits of that aren't going to be exactly uh, what you expect them to be. That um, apart from God, we make very bad decisions. At the, at the risk of sounding like a Sunday school teacher, <laughs> that um, when when we have lost that scope of of faith, when we have lost that spirituality, when we when we lose the notion that our souls are eternal, that we um, that our decisions are not made in a vacuum, and that there um, there usually is a reason why certain things make us feel uh, scared or dangerous or make us feel regret uh that that is um that is a sign you know that that's god already speaking to us so if we if we push into that there's a good chance that we're not going to like where we wind up I, I i love the pangea image because it, it to me says so much not just about a certain lost sheep 
but about the nature of the Christian church as a whole and how it's fractured and, uh, and how each individual, we'll say continent, uh, sees itself as um, the true Christian church carrying on the true, you know, faith. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I don't believe necessarily that anyone has it right. I, I genuinely don't. I think that um, when those continents collide back together, um, it will make some beautiful mountains. It will, um, it, it will show, you know, that it, when, we, when we reunite uh, with Jesus as the core, with Jesus as the center, that that will be the most powerful, you know, that will be the most stable uh, group of, uh, you know, that that will be the most stable faith. There's, um, there's a prayer that I've been trying to pray every morning called the morning offering. It's actually a Roman Catholic prayer, but there is a line in it that's, that um, s- specifies this as a request. I'm going to read this real quick. Is that okay? Yeah. So uh, the traditional morning offering is, O Jesus, through the Immaculate Heart of Mary, I offer you my prayers, works, joys, sufferings of this day, in union with the holy sacrifice of the Mass throughout the world. I offer them for all the intentions of your sacred heart, the salvation of souls, the reparation for sin, the reunion of all Christians. I offer them for the intentions of our bishops and of all members of the apostleship of prayer, and in particular for the intention recommended by the Holy Father this month. So I love that, that even in, even in this deeply Catholic prayer, that there is this, there's this line here that we we all need to get back together on this. Yes, that, the reunion of all Christians. Too, Just imagine me like waving a big foam finger as soon as you said that. <laughs> That's what it's all about. Let's do this. Let's get back together. Like, you know, you know what my favorite line in any uh, Christian song or or Christmas carol or anything is that moves me to tears every time I hear it is. Um, Peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. <laughs> mm. Oh, I love it every time. It doesn't matter if it's just a, you know, carol, uh, you know, a, a children's chorus, like tunelessly singing it. It will move me to tears. God and sinners reconciled, you know, just coming together, meeting in the middle and, and just laying down your arms. Mm. That, that brings... Um not just the reconciliation of the sinners amongst themselves, but the sinners amongst themselves and together with God. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's beautiful. Um, at the risk of sounding uh, heretical, I don't really understand the parable of the lost coin being in this section because <laughs> it, it feels like a, they're just repeating exactly what happens in the lost sheep. Did, was there something else that you gleaned from the parable of the lost coin versus the lost sheep? I mean, maybe as a, as a image, it might, I mean, you know, I'm not a historian, so this is just conjecture, right? We're, we're just throwing ideas around here, but I'm thinking, you know, what if, uh, the sheep that was lost was the, the, healthiest, fattest, best sheep, you know? (laughs) And maybe this idea of the coin is that we understand they, in a very literal sense, all have the exact same value. So 
it does not, it, it moves into the, the realm of pure metaphor if we are saying that you would care more about one coin than any other. Oh. You know, and then in this case, especially, that we would care more about one coin than nine. Yeah. Because the theoretically, are... I don't know, one sheep, like one healthy sheep could be more valuable than nine sickly sheep. <laughs> there is there's the possibility for like a value judgment being drawn to the yeah, what about that one sheep was so important. And so in the in in repeating this same essentially the same message she's saying okay, well yeah, it wasn't a yeah, it's not about the sheep. It's about the uh it's about the the finding. So, okay, here let me try this again. <laughs> yeah. Because can't you imagine like a sort of like I mean, I think that Jesus must have had, and we, we get this sometimes in the gospel, but like not that often, but must have had some like devil's advocates, you know, um, the way that, I mean, I didn't actually take philosophy courses in college, but I feel like there's, the, we have this like cultural idea of somebody that's just trying to like poke like annoying holes in, you know, uh, symbolic, like philosophical language. And, you know, can you imagine, you know, somebody just sitting there, you know, saying, uh, 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 but, you know, what, what is that one sheep just like the, the only one that's worth anything? And those other 99 are all sickly and, you know, poisoned. <laughs> <laughs> that's, um, that's a really good observation. There was only one other thing that, um, that again, I'll bring up the, the Bible study group that we have on the, on the patron discord, but someone else had brought up that. The, um, the parable begins with a hundred and then 10. And then the final parable in this section is just two. Yeah. And that it's sort of narrowing this down that no matter the scope, um, that one is equally as important. If you've lost 50% of your family or you've lost one-tenth of your family or you've lost one one-hundredth of your family or flock or whatever, that that effort to seek and that effort to welcome back in and rejoice when that lost sheep or coin or son is brought back is that joy is equally as deep and 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 the um the celebration is equally as great yeah i mean if we're also thinking in terms of you know this this earthly uh, these earthly terms that Jesus had to work with, um, the value of a living, healthy sheep um, doesn't really have a ceiling at a certain point. You know, it can produce a lot of value if it mm. has children and it produces, you know, wool. Um, so we go from something that has uh, a lot of ceiling for value and a lot of room for value to a coin that, again, you know, you could invest. But then we move into this prodigal son who the father just has to spend money on to welcome him back in, to feed him, to clothe him, you know? So we go from something with a sort of, like, infinite surplus value to this this middle territory with a coin to something that creates a negative value in our earthly, um, you know, our earthly sense of it. And, you know, it's important to note I guess we'll just we'll just head right head right to this one because I think that that's kind of where we're headed right now anyway but when when the son comes back when the prodigal son returns he makes an offer to say I don't even want to be your son I'll just be 
one of your workers, one of your hired hands. I, I just need somewhere to be, you know, I don't deserve to be your son. And of course the father says, no, what are you, you know, what are you talking about? Of course you're my son. That like, there is an, there is an offer there made by the lost son or is it the lost son? Maybe the other son is lost. We don't know. Uh, <laughs> but there is that offer made to, to I can create value for you again. I can, I can produce for you in some way that, that makes your welcoming me back in profitable for you, or at least um, make, makes it so that you break even on, on allowing me to, to stay here. And it, it, the father shrugs it off. He says completely, you know, absolutely not. That's not, that's not how this is going to go. Your coming back to me is not because I need something from you. It's because I rejoice in your being here with me. I don't need anything from you. God doesn't need anything from us. There's nothing that we can give to God that God doesn't already have. Uh, we can bargain as much as we want, um, but ultimately what God wants is our soul. God wants our mind and our heart. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, I, I know that we're probably about to really parse through this right from the beginning, but just because this really gave me this concept, I think um, the problem with our, our earthly parents sometimes is that it does become that sort of transactional language, whether this is said explicitly, which oftentimes it's not, but I think that the undertone sort of carries it there, that uh, in this life, Parents think that they give, in a very literal sense, money, time, and their youth to their children. And this, this tension is from this very misguided feeling that, well, you have to in some way pay it back. You have to pay it back by being a certain kind of person that I would like for you to be. Uh, or literally, you know, you, you should you know, become very successful and share money with me. You know, I, I put this investment into you and you should repay it. But what our true father understands is the gift that we have been given is one that can never be repaid. So it is sort of futile to actually try and <laughs> make that, make those scales even. And this mm. was also a part of our discussion, of course, with Jacob and Esau. You know, Esau says... I have everything I need um, because that, again, there's just that gratitude of, of life. You know, uh, we can ask and we can want and we can want and we can want, but we've already been given a gift that is bigger than we could ever hope to repay. And try as we might, we can't lose it. Um, that the offer is always there, that the door is always open. What was it, Jacob? Was Did he offer five... Was, what did we determine? It was 575 uh, various kinds of livestock yes. <laughs> that he offered to his brother. And yeah, he was like, no, I don't, I don't want any of that. Like, I'm just glad that we've made peace. And, and in a grander scale, I think that's, that's how God sees it, as um, your salvation through Jesus, you know, through coming back to me through your sin, through, through the things that you've done wrong, that you realize uh, that you've done wrong and have repented, or you've been 
dragged out of <laughs> by your by your caller through one way or another that um that is not there's no bargaining chip that you need to play here that's that's not how this works that's not how the the unending unconditional love of god works god just loves us and wants nothing more than to be closer to us and and if we desire the same it usually leads us to the right place yeah I think then, yeah, if we think about these three parables then, to, you know, give my sort of really digging into this as as literary construction, it is perfect because we start with these two examples that are more in that earthly realm of figures and value, and we, we build into this rhythm, and then the curtains are pulled apart in in what we're about to get into now, and we realize that values and numbers of sheep or coin is absolutely insignificant when we are discussing things that are relating to our eternal souls. Mm. Yeah, those those earthly things just don't they don't pencil in the in the ledger of of eternity, in the ledgers of heaven. Those um those things don't matter. Um uh, do you want to? Do you want to maybe read some of this? Do you want to maybe get through, um, read through like eleven through sixteen? I would love to. I will tell you, I am using a different translation than you are. Oh, um, I love to to jump around with translations. So. I I won't say that I have. Um, I don't have a, a translation picked out for myself yet. The reason that I have been turning to this Bible for our discussions is a little bit of sentimentality, I suppose. This is the Bible that I did get from my church um, on June 8th, 2003. It says it right here. Um, and I, I mean, I probably stopped going to church relatively soon after that, but this this was my first one, and it's a red, uh, red letter text. Um, so nice. what we're reading right now, I'm seeing a lot of red. <laughs> um, so this is the New Revised Standard. Okay. So shall I read? How about I just take us from 11 to 24, so half, half of this. It sounds great. Then Jesus said, There was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that will belong to me. So he divided his property between them. A few days later, the younger son gathered all he had and traveled to a distant country, and there he squandered his property in dissolute living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. He would gladly have filled himself with the pods that the pigs were eating, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired hands have bread enough and to spare? But here I am dying of hunger. I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. So he set off and went to his father. But while he was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. Then the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly, bring out a robe, the best one, 
and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet and get the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. My favorite image in in the first portion that you just read was the father running towards the son because I'm picturing this old man. I mean, what they were wearing at the time was essentially like a long, like a dress. And so this is like an old man with his, like his beard, like picking up his, the little, the little, the bottom of his dress and kind of scurrying, <laughs> you know, hobbling like it, like a, like an old man does, but running, you know, breaking into a full sprint when seeing the son of his who, who disappeared and, and squandered his, his inheritance. I mean, his son essentially said, I'd rather you were dead right now. Can I just have my money and leave? Mm-hmm. And uh, rather than seeing his son and going, oh, you came crawling back, you miserable sack of shit. He goes, it's, it's him. He's back. Unbelievable. And, and runs towards him. However, an old man, you know, would run <laughs> with the dress on. Um, it's just such a beautiful image. And, and what a fantastic mirror to our last discussion. And again, it's this humility, right? By, by having enough humility to go to the one who you have hurt, who you have mm. acted against, by even just showing your face, they will run to you. Yeah. Yeah, and there's, there's this odd flip side, which we discussed a little bit, uh, in the last conversation too, of of Jacob having had you know had so many sons, and those sons kind of turned on one of the sons, and and the son kind of uh, he was sold into uh, slavery, and then eventually you know took a position of power in Egypt, and and he was um, he became a very prominent man, and he wound up actually coming back to the family, and and looking out for them and taking care of them despite the fact that he was wronged. But there is sort of a similar moment of reconciliation between father and son that is so, you know, that's beautiful. That, yeah, I mean, you see this, it's like um, the theme is so similar that that Jesus obviously knew his scripture well, because these stories are, you know, breathed through all of this, you know, all of the scripture that these people would have known at the time. You know, when he was speaking to a Pharisee, he would use a story that would, that the Pharisees could understand and relate to, oh, this sounds kind of like this, you know, this sounds kind of like a story that I've already heard before. Now I can understand. Now I can relate. And of course, when Jesus was talking to, 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 people who were sort of outside of that realm of spirituality, the, the stories change a little bit and, and the message changes a little bit. And, and I think that's really, I mean, that's the wisdom of God, uh, playing to your audience, uh, knowing, knowing the room, you know? <laughs> yeah. It's so, it's so, it's so incredible. Um, the, the hurt that a father would feel when, when saying, just give me my money now, I'll take my share, I'm going to sell it, I'm going to leave, must have been deep. And I don't know if it's exactly relating, I mean, in, in a one-to-one way to how God feels when we, when we fall away, um, when we stop believing or we stop observing and we stop praying. Um, I think that there is a deep 
longing, though, on the part of God and a deep sadness when we when we do get lost and, or when we do reject the love that we are shown on a daily basis by a creator, a God that um, loves us and, and gifts us so many things in our lives that, um, that there must be some sort of ache like that on God's part. I mean, I can't really speak, obviously I can't speak for God, but that, um, you know, we see Jesus emote, you know, emote in this way a few times and, and become overwhelmed and that, I mean, Jesus being one with God expresses that sort of feeling that, you know, it's, it's, it just makes me that much more, like makes me feel that much guiltier and that much more horrible about like the things that I do that I shouldn't be doing. And, uh, and I suppose that's like a healthy urge to a certain point. I mean, that could kind of get pathologized to some extent <laughs> at some point. But. Yeah, I think that's happened once or twice in the last couple thousand years. <laughs> yeah, I mean, just a few times. <laughs> So we have, we have a turn here at 24 into 25 because the focus entirely was on the son who left, who blew all of his money on what I can only assume to be gambling. And I believe actually, oh, let's go back to the message because I think they had a very funny turn of phrase. Oh, maybe I was reading a different translation, but there was a... Uh, one of the translations I was reading said he blew, basically said he blew all his money on whores, uh, which <laughs> was like, what the, what the hell? I don't think that, I didn't think that we were talking that way in this, uh, in this old book here, but yeah, it just says, uh, he just, he wasted everything he had. It says in the, in the message, it says, uh, after he had gone through all his money, there was a bad famine all through that country, and he began to feel it. He signed on with a citizen there who assigned him to the fields to slop the pigs. He was so hungry that he could have uh, he would have eaten the corn cobs in the pig slop, but no one would give him any. To be so humbled, to um, be so lost that, like, I don't even know what I'm going to eat. I guess I'm just going to eat what these pigs are eating. It's... Um, I mean, it's tragic, but it's like you reap what you sow to a certain extent. So I don't know that we're supposed to have a lot of compassion uh, that maybe like the story is playing to the human urge to say, yeah, well, you know, you you fucked around and now you find out, right? Mm -hmm. You've, you've made your mistake. Uh, you've made your bed, now lie in it. Yeah, eat the pig slop because that's what you deserve. But that's not at all what God is is doing with this story. That's not at all what, what um, then that's where the turn comes, where Jesus says, no, 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 because they came back and the father ran towards him. And the father immediately invited him in and said, let's celebrate. One more has come home. It's something that I'm thinking about reading this now is that um, it's not, it, it, again, if we, we can always take these stories two different ways. We can take the literal way where we're imagining um, a literal version of this tale and then, you know, we're always going to discuss the deeper spiritual meaning. But while I was contemplating the, the literal telling of this tale for a minute, I was thinking, well, maybe a literal version of this is actually hard to relate to because, frankly, a lot of us don't get to experience this because we don't actually get a windfall of money, right? And I was thinking, you know who this kind of happens to in our contemporary world? This is like people who win the lottery, you know? Oh, wow. And that yeah. is a very 
classic now, I think, over the however long the lotteries really existed, you know, the last century, that is a pretty classic image of it's always going to go bad. You know, Mm. we, I think, like, understand that's like a shorthand for if you win the lottery, you are going to end up in the pigsty, right? (laughs) Yeah, never get the lump sum payment. You always want to get the the uh, the 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 lottery bonus in 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 installments, right? Yeah, because otherwise we will go out and blow it all on houses of ill repute. No, I, I get what you're saying, though. I think that that's, that's like a perfect analogy to something that we can relate to. Yeah, because most of us don't really have like a, um, an inheritance to speak of. I think that there's a number of reasons why that, that whole kind of tradition has gone away, uh, that um, people don't really pass things on anymore. We have like family heirlooms and things like that. And some people do get financial support from their family but a lot of people this this idea is kind of lost on them like okay well that's not something that i could do anyway so you know i i wouldn't i wouldn't be lost like that i would never do that and i think Um, especially if we take the the consideration of you know why does this like why is the reaction to this action so intense and so bad it's because it's so unearned right Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm even thinking about that in terms of, you know, yeah, there, there may be some people who might receive help or assistance. But again, that's not the lump sum that's doled out. But anything that you're going to get one time and it's just this big. Yeah, like, of course, it's going to go bad. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's um, I think it's it's interesting because like this this story presents two paths for us that a lot of us fall into. And it's, it's not true that all of us do, uh, that some people will be gracious when they're wronged. Some people will just naturally feel the urge to be forgiving and to be accepting. But a lot of us will either be the one that forsakes their family and goes off, or they'll be the one that says, well, I've been here all along and no one's been throwing a party for me like the older son, the one that doesn't go anywhere, does. And and it's like a cautionary tale in that way to say, uh, you know, obviously don't go out and do this because, you know, that's wrong in its own right, in its own way, that, you know, that will turn into tragedy either personally or for your loved ones. Mm-hmm. But it's also wrong to turn your back on someone who returns and seeks forgiveness and is penitent and is humbled and to say, look, you know, that's one too many times. You know, you've, you've run away one too many times. I cannot accept you back. I, um, I think that we would all, we all kind of give ourselves over to feelings like that from time to time. I think I'm probably more personally feel like I'm probably more likely to fall into the category of the one that runs away than the one that feels, <laughs> feels uh, resentful of of uh, of those, but I mean that comes back to uh, chapter uh, the same chapter in in seven, like we were talking about earlier, uh, where it says there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety nine righteous persons who need no repentance. The older son didn't need to apologize for anything; they didn't need to celebrate the fact that he woke up again. His waking up in a house where he had support and love from his family was a gift in and of itself. 
every day is a party, when you have a family that cares for you and loves you, that you devote yourself to, that's a gift. That is, that is the fatted calf. Yeah. Um, someone else can choose to run away from it and come back after they've eaten pig slop. But the, <laughs> trust me, your, your feeling like someone should be throwing a party for you all the time, uh, doesn't really, doesn't really pencil against, doesn't really match itself against the, you know, being in the slop with the pigs. That is a much sadder and much more tragic tra- trajectory than feeling like you're underappreciated. I like how you you say that, you know, in this story, and again, I know we're getting a little ahead of ourselves because we haven't really even gotten to the verses with the second brother yet, but it really inspired something in me because you say, oh, we, we see two brothers in this story and maybe a lot of our behavior falls into one of these categories. And I think that's pretty spot on, but the reason these stories are so fucking good and this really is just the best book is because everything works on so many different levels. You know, like I was saying, there's the level of the the earthly image that we understand and then the greater spiritual weight. And with this, this is like a great drama. And there is the spiritual metaphor where we're taking these two, these two brothers as human actors that we can understand. And the father, we know, is sort of meant to stand in for God. But if we Mm. allow ourselves maybe... Uh, a fuller perspective where we are seeing them as actors in a story and each one of them, even the father, is meant to represent some aspect of a human endeavor and because none of these three actually are God, we're taking the story at this level where these are all characters in a story. I mean, even the father, we can recognize some element of, of a human characterization in. Because in the version where it's God, that character is all-knowing, and it knows the ultimate uh, glad ending because God knows that we all will come back to him. But what if we consider this as a story where that is not literally God, where this is a man like the, the two brother characters are men? Well, then I'm thinking, you know, what does this remind me of? Well, this is King Lear, you know? Uh, and if there is oh, a, wow. a human <laughs> drive here, um, what would cause a man to give this great unearned gift to a son who may or may not appreciate it? Well, what drives Lear? It is that desperation, that equal need to be loved and to feel that love reciprocated. So the son is so ungrateful and says this terrible thing and the father just does it? Well, you know, if I look to King Lear, I think he does it because he needs to be loved just as much as anyone else does. And that, to me, then speaks to the beauty of that ending, that the father wants his son to return. He only did this crazy thing in the first place because he wanted his son to love him. And his reward is in seeing that the son does come home. Wow. I've never thought to make that connection. That's that's incredible. Uh, do you mind if I read 25 through 31 in The Voice? Yeah, please do. Okay. And then there's a little bit of um, a little bit of a summary at the end that points out a very important detail here that we can talk a little bit about. Um, in The Voice, at uh, verse 25, it says, Now the man's older son was still out in the fields working. He came home at the end of the day and heard music and dancing. He called one of the servants and asked what was going on. The servant said, 
Your brother has returned, and your father has butchered the fattest calf to celebrate his safe return. The older brother got really angry and refused to come inside, so his father came out and pleaded with him to join the celebration. But he argued back, listen, all these years I've worked hard for you. I've never disobeyed one of your orders. But how many times have you even given me a little goat to roast for a party with my friends? Not once. This is not fair. So this son of yours comes, this wasteful delinquent who spent your hard-earned wealth on loose women. And what do you do? You butcher the fattest calf from our herd. And the father replied, my son, you are always with me and all I have is yours. Isn't it right to join in the celebration and be happy? This is your brother we're talking about. He was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found again. So this little this little um, paragraph at the end says, the parable ends, Jesus never reveals how it came out. Did the older brother join the party and reconcile with his younger wayward, wayward brother? Or did he stay outside fuming over the seeming injustice of his father's extravagant love? The story remains unresolved because it is, in fact, an invitation an invitation to the Pharisees and other opponents of Jesus to join him in welcoming sinners and other outsiders into the joyful party of the kingdom. Uh, I love the way they put that. Um, that, you know, obviously we see it as, you know, people returning to God in that sort of spiritual relationship, but it's also like people who have who had fallen away from faith in their churches, in their communities, and that Jesus is challenging the Pharisees to say, you've driven all these people out because of who they are or what they do. Now it's time to welcome them back in. Are you going to stand outside the party? And are you going to get mad about other people having a good time? Or are you going to come in, have a drink, eat some cow, and <laughs> join us? Yeah. And with that image, you have to think, again, like I was saying, nobody wants to be the lost sheep. Nobody wants mm-hmm. to be the, the fuming, mad brother. <laughs> I guess, you know, if this doesn't already exist, I, I hope that one of, uh, you know, your great listeners can make this, you know, the, the crying meme, just like, uh, no, you can't just welcome back my brother who, you know, took all your money and wasted <laughs> it on prostitutes. <laughs> you know, the father. Okay, yes, y- you heard it, folks. <laughs> Tweet it at me, please. Yeah, please. (laughs) We're gonna need. We're gonna need that pronto. (laughs) You know, it's been a long time since I made a meme. Maybe I should dust (laughs) off the old Photoshop and see what I can do. (laughs) But I think it's it's a it's an important thing. I think uh, that note really brought it. Really, sort of made the the wheels turn in my head a little bit more about the story, and and it's something that I always assume. I hear the end of this, and I go, okay. Then everyone, you know, shrugged their shoulders and said, "The older son said, oh, 'Oh, you're right, Dad. Let's all go in and party.'" Uh, when that's not really what happens at the end of the story, we don't actually know if the older uh, if the older son makes peace with it, if he's okay with it in the end. That we are left to either assume that people are good and will um, accept and love even if at first they are not totally on board with it, or we're left to think that some of us will just always be mad about other people being saved when we feel like we were there first, like we were in line first. And somebody just cut in line because, what, they they were away, and now we're happier that they're back. Um, I've been doing it right this whole time. 
I haven't, to be clear. I wasn't speaking about myself. <laughs> I've been doing it wrong for a very long time. I'm probably still doing it wrong, to be totally clear. But God's merciful, and God forgives. Yeah. No matter I'm, how much pig slop I eat. I, I Again, the, the, the human drama of it, I think what is wonderful is we can empathize with that position, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it does seem thankless. But again, that's just a lack of gratitude. <laughs> you know, if we compare the, the situation that this brother has been in, you know, if he hasn't been out there eating pig slop, then, you know, again, it's all the, the perspective. Then seems like he's had a pretty good deal. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's... um. There's a note in the a footnote in the NRSV that I have that makes a point to point out the same thing that says Jesus's aim was to portray the difference between God's loving forgiveness and the self-centered complacency that not only denies love but cannot understand it. It pushes it back on the Pharisees, um, and it really focuses the the energy of this story at you are in fact the older, you know, you're the older brother. You're the one that's dissatisfied with, with these people who are trying to, to change themselves. We see a similar reflection in, uh, in the story where, uh, where a, a woman who is seen as unclean or sinful washes Jesus's feet with her tears. And Simon the Pharisee, who Jesus is sitting with, says, don't you know who that woman is? Why would you, why would you let her touch you? She's unclean. And Jesus says something along the same lines. It basically, you know, shouldn't I be happier that these people have changed themselves and have changed their minds and are repentant? Shouldn't shouldn't we be overjoyed by people wanting to get closer to God? Yeah, because it is um, it is not easy to repent. You know, um, no. I think that is something that you know maybe when we when we feel our fellowship and we are excitedly discussing these things in the abstract, maybe it's easy to forget that in our private moments, repentance can be quite challenging because it's embarrassing. Repentance, I think, is embarrassing. And that's why humility often factors into these conversations, because to humble yourself is to admit your flaws, to admit defeat, to admit wrongness. Um, Mm -hmm. And we often see in scripture people do that when they are at their absolute lowest. But these are stories. And in life, I think that um, you never can really feel at your lowest. (laughs) Or at least often we can't because it's not so clean cut. Um, Mm -mm. I think that we have to just think of in... These terms, we think every moment that we feel far from God and, and in that way, each other, everyone else, that that has to be our lowest, you know? Um, every time, it has to just feel our lowest. And in the same way, I, I think what I'm learning in these conversations and what I'm trying to advocate for myself is similarly feeling that communion and that closeness and that oneness as every time my earthly peak and to just sort of hope for, uh, you know, the, the, the life of the world to come that 
that peak will be a plane. Hmm. You said something that really like stuck out in, in, in bright lights to me that, that repentance is embarrassing. It's humiliating that it should be, um, it should be celebrated when people turn away from the things that separate themselves from their families, from their loved ones, from God, because separating ourselves from our loved ones is separating ourselves from God, I think is kind of what you were, yeah. you know, getting at there, but it is, it's embarrassing. It's humiliating at the risk of sounding like, um, overly critical of a movement that I think in general is doing incredible things. The, the notion of confession and repentance is kind of lost in a lot of progressive Christianity that, um, I'm not saying that we shouldn't open our eyes and, and think a little further about what it might mean to um, what, it, what sin truly means, not in the context of the um, society and the world that they were living in, uh, you know, when the Bible was written, when scripture, uh, when, when the scripture that we all focus our hearts and our minds on all the time, that, that the idea of sin has kind of changed and, and been played with and, and, and selectively enforced by a lot of churches. But it is so important that we humble ourselves in that humiliation comes like uh, our bringing ourselves back. But it takes that humiliation. It takes that embarrassment. And it's, it's, can, it can be horrifying sometimes. You feel like you're eating pig slop. I don't know how many times we've said the phrase pig slop on this episode, but it feels <laughs> like a lot. But it feels like that. I mean, it, it's... You're picking the corn cobs out of the mud. Um, you know, it's it's um, it's very very difficult, and it requires uh, it requires uh, repentance, and, and it requires understanding what you've done wrong. And that can be in the world that we live in today. That can be the hardest thing, is knowing the difference, uh, and not just saying, uh, you know, not dismissing it as saying, well, that's archaic thinking. That's that's old timey. That's not. You know that's not relevant anymore, or whatever. Yeah, that we need to find what that core of truth is. Uh, what is it actually that separates us? What is it actually that that makes us lost? Uh, what is it that makes us stray from from the the flock or become a coin that gets lodged under a couch cushion? Yeah, I think that's beautifully said. I, I think it is so spot on that there might be this um, desire to remove our concept from of sin from our faith completely because we know how the concept of sin and sin and the concept of shame has been weaponized for you know thousands of years in ways that we can all maybe agree now if we're in a, a certain um, communion that well you know we, we don't feel that way anymore but it's important to remember yes that sin does exist and it is failing to love your neighbor as you love yourself mm-hmm that is still real, and that is still yes. something that we should repent and that we should be embarrassed. We should be embarrassed, not for these things that we all know that we, we I think, are really trying to move past, but we should just be embarrassed for not loving each other. That should be embarrassing. If you're ever confused about what sin is, it's that, right? Let's hear what the greatest commandment is. <laughs> Yeah. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind and all your strength and love your neighbor like you love yourself because 
whether we want to admit it or not, we all love ourselves. We all indulge ourselves. We all, uh, even if we say jokingly, oh, I hate myself, that indulgence of your own self-pity is is you finding love in yourself by hating yourself. That's confusing. But you kind of know what I'm getting at there. Um, this was, I'm sorry, I, I hate that we're out of time now, but I, this was awesome. I think, uh, if anyone, you know, anyone was listening to this and enjoyed, you know, particular, uh, moments in this, uh, then I would definitely recommend checking out the Patreon. Um, there is at present 16 bonus episodes to listen to, two come out every month. Uh, we have amazing people involved with the discord that we have for patrons. We have a weekly Bible study. I know I sound like a broken record, but if I don't plug this stuff, more people won't understand that, that it is a really, truly great resource and, and community that we have. And, um, and, uh, we've, we've all kind of gotten closer with our weekly, um, groups and, and just fun stuff that we all kind of get involved in. And I, I really just truly enjoy it. So if you like this episode, check out the Patreon, um, Evelyn, do you have any you have any plugs? Yeah, I mentioned this on the last one, but this time I'll do it for the the whole the whole audience, the free audience. Um, I am a uh, writer, and I, I publish a uh, magazine of pulp and fantasy and science fiction called Worthy Tales. Um, you can find us on WorthyTalesMagazine.com. WorthyTalesMagazine.com. I'll include a link in the show notes for that. And I just wanted to say thank you again. This was, um, this was awesome. And, and hopefully we'll have another chance to talk again sometime, sometime in the future. And we'll find another passage that I'm sure somehow will relate to (laughs) what we talked about so far. Yeah. Well, I think it all feeds the center Pangea, you know, like it's all going to come back to the center somehow. Or maybe you can join us for a movie night on the Discord some night, and we'll watch Jesus Christ Superstar together. Yes, that'd be great. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, This week's poem is by Rainer Maria Rilke, and it is called The Departure of the Prodigal Son. To go forth now from all the entanglement that is ours and yet not ours, that, like the water in an old well, reflects us in fragments, distorts what we are, from all that clings like burrs and brambles to go forth and see for once, close up, afresh, what we had ceased to see. So familiar it had become to glimpse how vast and how impersonal is the suffering that filled your childhood. Yes, to go forth, hand pulling away from hand. Go forth to what? To uncertainty, to a country with no connections to us and indifferent to the dramas of our lives. What drives you to go forth? Impatience, instinct, a dark need, the incapacity to understand, to bow to all of this, to let go, even if you have to die alone. Is this the start of a new life? Thanks, everybody. You know it ain't no use to banging your head up against that cold stone wall Cause nobody's perfect for the Lord and even the best bound to fall remember he is divine and you a deep branch he loves to get you through and if you give him a chance just keep
that it's blessed. And Jesus takes care of the rest. Yes, the Lord said that he. 